usually after a summit we say uh, almost every time it's historic. Um, but the summit in Madrid uh, is without any doubt one of the most consequential summits in recent memory when it comes to NATO. And if you look only to what uh, we have decided and our leaders have decided, it's just nothing short of remarkable. The Democracy in Practice series by Club de Madrid gathers the voices of democratic former presidents and prime ministers who leverage their individual and collective leadership experience to strengthen inclusive democratic practice today to better deliver towards the well-being of people around the world. to the 11th episode of Club de Madrid's podcast series, Democracy in Practice. My name is Agustina Briano. I'm coordinator for outreach and development at the Club de Madrid, and it's my honor to be your moderator today. We are joined by Alexander Stubb, former prime minister of Finland, member of Club de Madrid, and current director of the School of Transnational Governance at the European University Institute, and Merja Joanna, deputy secretary general of NATO. With them, we will take stock and reflect on the results of the recent NATO summit held in Madrid and its immediate effects on matters such as the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the possible accession of Sweden and Finland to the Defense Alliance, and the relationship with China. Welcome both of you to Democracy in Practice. It's an honor to have you with us. Without further delay, let's get into the conversation. Deputy Secretary General Giona, Russia's war on Ukraine has entered its fifth month in the meetings during the recent NATO summit, issues of paramount importance for the defense of the allied countries were discussed, including the new strategy towards Russia as a result of the war. What main changes will we see in this front? And do you think the strategy is well understood in regions like Africa and Latin America? No, thank you for inviting me and it's a privilege to be uh, with you and uh, with Prime Minister Stubb. Um, you know, usually after a summit, we say uh, almost every time it's historic. Um, but the summit in Madrid uh, is without any doubt one of the most consequential summits in recent memory when it comes to NATO. And if you look only to what uh, we have decided and our leaders have decided, it's just nothing short of remarkable. A new strategic concept. Uh, a new generation of uh, defense and deterrence for the eastern flank, a new package of support for Ukraine. Uh, for the first time ever, the leaders of the Asia-Pacific partners came at the highest level to a NATO summit. A big discussion on the south, uh, because Russia is the number one threat, but also terrorism is the most important asymmetrical threat. Of course, we have, we have decided on many things when it comes to to new technologies. We launched uh, a new innovation accelerator and a new innovation fund in NATO, which is a brand new uh, thing for NATO. So I can say, uh, thanking our Spanish hosts, uh, that this will stay in history, probably one of the most consequential and transformative summits in the history of NATO. Now, you, you, you ask about Russia. Uh, 
you know, I think it's quite obvious uh, that Russia uh, is the number one threat to European and I would say to global security. In it's it's an it's an aggressive, um, uh, a militaristic, and a neo-imperialistic attitude coming out of from Moscow. And NATO is in the business of defending one billion people, and uh, we are doing just just that. Uh, um, the relationship with Russia today uh, is basically frozen. The founding act, which was signed in 1997, is basically void of any content because of Russia's aggressive actions. Uh, we did not denounce the founding act of Russia because we believe that it's self-evident that Russia is basically emptying out uh, the arrangement that they had with NATO um, uh, some, uh, so many years back. So Russia is and will continue to be a very significant challenge and threat to our security and will, and will act accordingly. You also asked about China. If you look into the strategic concept of NATO, which was adopted, we define China uh, as a significant challenge uh, to our interest, to our values and to our security. It's in a way echoing what the European Union is saying and, and acting about China, but I think in terms of, of NATO, that's quite, quite significant. And I last, uh, I, I kept the, 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 the said that if one, the most visible and symbolical uh, decision in Madrid to have new uh, allies, new invitees, uh, since Madrid, uh, Finland and Sweden have signed the accession protocols here in NATO HQ for two countries that are so uh, impeccably democratic nation, high in militaries and resilient societies, the fact that they decided to join NATO is in itself a testimony to, to, to the difficult challenge we have in Europe in terms of security, but also that effect together we are much, much stronger. With Sweden and Finland inside, 96% of the total of the EU nations, member states will be also under the NATO umbrella, 96%. And now coming to the last part uh, of the question, we have to be also realistic and understand that not everyone around the world sees this conflict with the same eyes like we do in our, let's say, Euro-Atlantic uh, uh, or democratic world, if you say. And there are many, 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 many explanations to that. Some of them are some form of reticence to form a colonial or, let's say, other actions over time. Others are just hedging. Uh, others are just uh, recognizing the fact uh, that uh, China is rising and, and, and Russia remains uh, a significant uh, uh, security uh, provider to some of these countries. So I also hope that Finland and Sweden, because they have such a fantastic reputation also in, in the other parts of the world, because they've been neutral for so many long decades, for Sweden has been centuries, uh, through the sophisticated diplomacy they have, uh, with the resources in terms of assistance and aid that they are deploying, the fact that they are joining NATO, I think, is in itself a very strong commun strategic communication, if you want to. But we recognize that we have to work harder and do much better in convincing the, the others around the world, mainly developing world, that are seeing uh, this, uh, uh, you know, barbaric war of Russia against Ukraine of some form of, uh, you know, great power, European, transatlantic, US, a great power politics and not uh, they they don't see the war the, the face value so in a nutshell uh, an immensely successful summit in madrid and we are very great, uh, grateful again to our spanish host for the impeccable organization of the summit
Thank you, Deputy Secretary General. Uh, Prime Minister Stubb, in your YouTube lecture series, Understanding the War in Ukraine, which I highly recommend to listeners, by the way, congratulations for that, you focus on different angles of the Russian invasion, um, including an episode on, on NATO. So let me ask you this question. Having overcome Turkish concerns, NATO has triumphantly, as we've just heard, celebrated the upcoming entry of Sweden and Finland as the 30th and 31st members of the Atlantic Alliance. Finland's entry will practically double the alliance's border with Russia, adding more than 1,300 kilometers that used to be neutral. Finland and Sweden were previously already considered competent allies in security matters. Particularly, Sweden could even play a moderator role at, at times. What does NATO gain from these new entries and vice versa? Well, I think you know, Finnish and Swedish NATO membership, when it eventually happens, uh, is a win-win proposition uh, for the alliance. It's win-win for the Baltic Sea region uh, and for European security in general. Right now, we're in a situation whereby, roughly speaking, today on the 14th of July, 12 NATO member states out of 30 have uh, ratified uh, our accession and we expect this uh, speed uh, to continue and, and um, all things being equal or hoping that things go well, uh, we would be full members sometime in the fall latest uh, by the uh, end of the year. So um, my first observation is to say, I think there's a general misconception that Finland uh, is a neutral state. No, it's not. And it hasn't been that since the end of the Cold War. Uh, during the Cold War, we were neutral because of necessity, not because of uh, ideology. Um, that's what it was like to live next to a grand aggressor in the form of the Soviet Union. But immediately when the Soviet Union collapsed, we ditched the doctrine of uh, neutrality, moved to a status of a military non-aligned country, joined the European Union and forged a very close partnership with NATO. And I think the strategic decision that was taken around 1992 was to make ourselves as NATO compatible as possible. Um, and we were basically, you know, waiting for a rainy day. So there was an option to join NATO, but a decision not to join uh, until the rainy day came. And when it came, we were so compatible with NATO that it was very easy uh, for the 30 member states um, and NATO HQ to come to the conclusion that this is really a no-brainer. Finland and Sweden should join. Now, what is the value added? Well, the first value added is, of course, that you have a country with the biggest uh, uh, military reserve uh, in Europe with 900,000 men the, up to the age of 50. Uh, you have a compulsory military service. Uh, you have 280,000 troops that can be mobilized quickly in wartime. You have uh, 62 uh, F-18s, uh, just purchased 64 F-35s. On top of that, you have one of the most sophisticated uh, air-to-land and land-to-air missile defense systems. Uh, and when you add on to that, that um, Finland has participated in most joint NATO exercises in the Baltic Sea region and uh, in operations such as K4 in Kosovo and uh, Afghanistan uh, in form of ISAF. Um, you'll quickly notice that, uh, you know, Finland and to a certain extent Sweden as well, uh, 
are a great asset and a value added for the alliance. And I think that's why it was uh, quite um, rational to make a quick decision in, in, in Madrid. Now, I fully understand that these issues are sometimes also political, and, and that's what we saw with, with Turkey. And I'm glad that the first hurdle, at least, was, was overcome. Thank you. Turning back to Deputy Secretary General Joanna. Uh, the NATO summits ended with uh, an agreement to strengthen the alliance's capabilities. To this end, the representatives of the member countries agreed on the need to increase spending and investment in defense and security. It is no secret that the organization has emerged stronger and more united. What do you think could be the consequences of this for multilateralism at the global level? I mean, we've already talked about perceptions from China or from other regions. We've mentioned Africa, Latin America, and, and, and how this is perceived. Um, how do you think this can affect geopolitical trends going forward and the need to find global solutions to global challenges? No, if you look uh, to the description of the world in the new NATO strategy concept, I think in the preamble, we say that we are living in a world of great power competition, of pervasive instability, and that we anticipate that the period ahead of us will be full of shocks and structural trends colliding with each other. So it's a very complex international circumstances and international affairs. And you see also the mix between geopolitics and geoeconomics. The impact and consequences of COVID are not yet over. Uh, even the financial crisis of some uh, 10, 12 years ago are not over in, in a sense. So when you say great power competition, you basically say that, that this is a moment of fluidity in geopolitics. What you have discovered in NATO also uh, under the, the backdrop of this barbaric Russian war against Ukraine, the strength of our alliances and partnerships. I think that's the major, uh, if you want, conclusion of the sum summit in Madrid. I've been doing this business of politics in my home country of Romania and, and international affairs for many long years. I've never seen uh, our democratic nations more united than today. Um, why? Because we have war on our, on our doors, but also because the world is changing. The second observation is about the fantastic revolution of technology. I'm chairing in NATO the Innovation Board, and we are looking very carefully, as the EU is doing, as every nation does. Uh, the Prime Minister has not mentioned the fact that Finland and Sweden are also bringing superb technological and sophisticated companies at global reach, including on 5G, including on uh, many, many other high-end issues. So there is, there is also a competition for technological supremacy. This time not with Russia, but with China. So what we, what we know is that in moments like these, we have to gather our strength to put aside the differences that still exist amongst nations, including especially in our democratic world, Together, also with our, uh, in NATO, we are more than 50% of global GDP as we speak. And Finland and Sweden are bringing a lot, not only the GDP added uh, numbers, 
but the sophistication of the economic model and the transformative power of what they do in education, in healthcare, innovation, and so on and so forth. We also see uh, technology um, transforming also the way in which we conduct uh, warfare and security. We're looking at the, the fact that before the end of this decade, before the end of this decade, quantum technologies will have its commercial applications running. Quantum communications is already uh, uh, available, but the rest will come. Imagine the transformation that quantum would bring to everything from, from defense uh, to, to our economy. So the answer is that in front of very convulsive transformation of world affairs, in terms of the first real challenge to the West in five, five centuries, this is not only about the last decades, this is not only about 1812 when Sweden decided to go more or less on a neutral path. This is when uh, basically China decided to retrench five centuries ago. So in moments like these, we need each other more than ever. We need NATO and EU to work even closer together. Uh, we need NATO EU to work even closer together because we don't have the luxury of uh, using our resources in a way which is not synergistic. It will be a massive tactical mistake from us to go, I'm not saying to go in identical ways, but I'm saying to go in complementary synergistic ways. And again, the fact that Sweden and Finland, Finland and Sweden are joining NATO would also create in the EU, I think, the same momentum that we see in NATO in doing even more between our two organizations, which are linchpins, not only European security, but world affairs. And that's why we are looking very seriously to the decade ahead, which will be probably one of the most complex transformations in human history. If you add geopolitics, geoeconomics, technology, um, and, and uh, the transformation of, of, uh, of uh, everything we do. Thank you. Well, moving on to, to another multilateral challenge, which is the, the issue of, of nuclear non-proliferation. Prime Minister Stubb, some voices claim that countries like Sweden, where the majority opinion had always been uh, mostly against joining NATO, and now we understand clearly in, in favor, can help Ukraine, countries like Ukraine, move outside than inside NATO. Very much in line with the legacy of Olof Palme, some people think that by losing its non-alignment to military alliances, Sweden will also lose the ability to act against this existential threat of, of nuclear weapons, um, precisely because it's now a member of a, of a nuclear alliance. Um, so in these terms, what do you think is the best configuration to serve an effective multilateralism or an effective action against the proliferation of nuclear weapons? I'm a humble Finn. I would be the last one to give any advice to my uh, Swedish uh, colleagues and, and, and friends. Uh, but the more serious one is to say that, you know, sometimes foreign and security policy is binary. You know, you have to choose a side and there's very little space for neutrality. And I think we've reached that stage in 2022. I mean, when the Cold War ended in 1989, many of us believed in the end of history and the possibility that most 200 nation states in this world would move towards the best form of governance, which is a combination of liberal democracy, social market economy, and, and globalization. And it was also a belief that you stick to international law and to international rules. 
And to a certain extent, for the first few years and even decade or two, we were moving in the right direction. But this started to change with Russia in 2008 when it attacked Georgia, created two frozen conflicts in South Ossetia and Abkhazia, and then with the annexation of uh, Crimea. And now, of course, uh, with the uh, full-blown attack, and as the Deputy Secretary General said, the barbaric attack of, of Russia on, 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 on Donbass. The big worry I have right now is, is not so much that you know Sweden would work as a mediator of Finland, but that international rules are not respected. And, and, and this is, I think, the, the bigger and more serious problem that we had, have. You know, the issue of non-proliferation is, is, is a good one. Any form of armament treaties, whether they've been dealt with in the U context of the UN or, or the OSCE. But when you have a country like Russia, which respects nothing, absolutely nothing, and understands only one thing, which is power, then there's absolutely no room for, for mediation. What I find a little bit mind-boggling in this whole debate about you know, whether Finland and Sweden should join or not, and as a matter of fact, you know, Finnish opinion polls are now about 80% in favor of NATO membership, and, and the vote in parliament was 188 in, in favor, and uh, you know, only a handful against. Um, what I find quite mind-boggling is, is this sort of naive belief that, that you could somehow you know, mediate with the Russia. No, you can't. You know, there was an attempt, and I was myself mediating peace in Georgia in 2008 when I was chairman of the OSC and foreign minister of Finland. There was an attempt to do that with Russia. It failed. There was an attempt to do it after Crimea. It failed, the Minsk uh, format. There has been attempts to do them in this war. The, you know, the only thing that Russia li listens to is, is power. So in that sense, um, yes, uh, the nuclear issue is, is looming large. Uh, it's hovering over our heads. Uh, but when we right now live in a world where, you know, one party certainly, uh, Russia, does not respect any form of international rules, I don't see any other form than to support Ukraine in whatever it wants to do at this particular moment. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Deputy Secretary Joanna, NATO defines itself as an organization that promotes democratic values and enables members to consult and cooperate on defense and security related issues to solve problems, build trust, and in the long run, prevent conflict. Much has been said lately about how uh, Putin threatens the Western way of life. What do you think about this narrative? And how does the Atlantic Alliance defend the democracy? Listen, I think um, uh, I think Putin and the Kremlin as a as a let's say an establishment, if you want, of power. They decided some years back um, that they are not satisfied, if you want to the kind of um, new balance of power after the end of the Cold War. Prime Minister mentioned the, the OSCE. I also chaired the OSCE as foreign minister of my home country, Romania, 2001. It was after 9-11. At that moment, discussions with, Russia's, with Russia and leadership there were relatively smooth. So what they developed over time, it was a sort of a, an ideology which is combined of two ingredients. Both are textbooks of propaganda. The first one 
is the fact that the West is declining in terms of its morality, in terms of Christian values and things like that. And the second one, that basically Russia has been humiliated and it's only normal for the Russian leadership to, 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 to get back its former glory and restore the empire. So these are the two sides of this kind of ideology, which is, has been developed and, and, and communicated and, uh, and, and materialized uh, for some years now. It's quite powerful. And if you look at most of the Russian public opinion is, is basically buying into this, despite the fact that there's, of course, uh, there is uh, no democracy and no freedom of, 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 of thought and of the media. But nonetheless, this was an ideology uh, that was, uh, was there. What I think happened uh, when they took the decision after Crimea and after Georgia, the prime minister's right, to go at full war against Ukraine, and NATO has said that they are going to do this. The U.S. said intelligence declassified intel from U.S. and from NATO and other allies. We said that they're going to do it this time around. I think in a way they started to believe their own propaganda. To believe that we are declining, that we are weak, that we are disunited, and Ukraine is basically no nation. They are claiming that Ukraine doesn't have statehood. And not only statehood in terms of political boundaries, but in terms of the ingredients for statehood, which is national pride, national mythology, that kind of softer glue that keeps a nation together. And I think Mr. Putin was wrong on every single front of his assumption. The West is more united and stronger than ever. NATO, that he was trying to say, uh, shut the door open of NATO, we have now two fantastic new allies. Sweden and Finland. He said, don't put more troops uh, and presence in the eastern uh, flank countries, new NATO member states, including my country, Romania. Now we have the same level of security guarantees in Poland or Romania, like or the Baltic countries, like we have in Belgium and Germany. And I think more than anything else, they managed to create uh, in the in the forge of war, if you want, a Ukrainian nation and, uh, and, 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 and some of form of patriotism and bravery that will stay for the Ukrainian people for centuries, all their life. They will be remembering, telling their kids and grandkids of the great war of survival, the real, the real war of independence and sovereignty. So that's in a more political, if you want, or more, if you want, philosophical or in terms of political ideas, what was going on. And I think the fact, and let me say one thing before, uh, uh, before uh, wrapping up this, this, uh, this answer. Something that really was music to my ears, and it was the best news for all of us. Of course, we are very proud that our leaders, and we showed unity, that we are supporting Ukraine, as the Prime Minister has said, in any way we can, and we'll continue to do that. But for me, the most formidable good news is to see in train stations, and airports all around Europe and North America, volunteers from those countries fundraising for the Ukrainian refugees with the flag and fundraising some money. To see NGOs helping Ukraine, to see our business community helping. Just one day before the war started on, 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 on February 23rd, there was a massive cyber attack by Russia against 
the communi telecommunication satellite of Ukraine. And they basically, they paralyzed, they crippled the communications. A few weeks later, who comes in? A major technological company giving uh, internet access. So the, this combination between our political leaders, our public opinions, and our business community working together, it's a regalvanization of our democracy. And for me, this is the best news. In, in a way, it's even beyond uh, the political decisions we took uh, together recently, because our young generations mainly, for the first time ever, they've seen that war is still possible in Europe. It's a wake-up call for all of us, not only for Germany, not only for that country or that country in terms of politicians or national parliaments. For us, we understand that we need to fight and defend our democracy, that our way of life is not for granted, that someone can come tomorrow and in one, instead of a, of a free life as free people, we can find ourselves sent to the gulags, like hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians that are deported from Ukraine. In, in, in an attempt, which is even more barbaric than war, to erase the cultural identity of a nation. So this is what is really all about. It's about us rediscovering the strength of our democratic life and our, of our values. For me, this is the most precious part of all this very difficult period. Thank you so much, Deputy Secretary General. Um, Prime Minister Stubb, as, as a member of the Club de Madrid, and the Club de Madrid being an organization that works to promote democratic practice and democratic values, allow me to, to pose you the last question, drawing from this thread of, of, of the issue of democracy. No? And, and as we know, there has been this, this, this debate of what we're seeing now with the war in Ukraine, if it's a, a, a battlefield between democracies and, and autocracies, um, if it's, we've seen votes at UN level, we've seen uh, the, the attitude and sometimes changing attitude of the, of the BRICS. How do you see this conflict within this broader picture of the state of democracy and what can be the, the development of democracy further at a, a global level? Because as the Deputy Secretary General was saying, Europe is more united in its defense of its way of life and its principles. But how do we extract it to other regions and that perspective at, a, 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 at the global stage? Yeah, I guess, you know, a few observations which can be taken in the form of, of good news and bad news. And, and, and I guess the good news, as the Deputy Secretary General said, is that we've probably never seen the West as united uh, as we were. Uh, and have been since the beginning of this war, whether it's about the European Union, about NATO, about the rejuvenation of the transatlantic uh, relationship. And of course, if we remember in the beginning of the war, there was also very strong condemnation for all those countries that had been what could be, for lack of a better term, called Putin appeasers. So countries that really wanted to, you know, cooperate and appease and 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 work with uh, Russia no matter what. And of course, right now we're seeing a situation whereby Europe will be split completely into two. On one side of the new Iron Curtain, you have an isolated imperialist, revisionist, and aggressive Russia, authoritarian at that as well. And on the other side, you have about 40 um, European democracies who believe in cooperation and 
international law, human rights, and and fundamental rights. So in that sense, it's been a rejuvenation also of uh, European democracy, with, of course, you know, some glitches here and there. There's no denying. I mean, democracy is one form of governance, but as we all know, democracy is, is never perfect. Uh, now, the other observation I want to make is that we should be careful in not framing this as an issue only about Russia and the West. Uh, I think this is much more than that. It's also about uh, the West and the rest. Uh, and in that sense, I think uh, I hate to inject a little bit of realism into the democracy debate. I think the time when uh, you know the West sort of exports democracy by either force or otherwise is over. Uh, and I, in, in, in many ways, we can see that in the reactions of the rest of the world to this war. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the UN votes. Well, yeah, I rejoiced, much like everyone else, that 141 countries uh, condemn Russia, 35 abstained, and, and then four voted in favor of Russia. But when we scraped the surface, we quickly realized that the 141 votes in the UN were uh, soft. Uh, they were, you know, put together last minute. Uh, and they didn't, how I put it, how do I put it, you know, come straight from the heart. We also quickly noticed that the 35 countries that abstained, they actually represent over half of the world's population, obviously, because they include China and, and India. I forget the four rogue states. I don't even need to mention those. But uh, I did a little bit of research and work on, on reactions and quickly realized that in Africa, where there are a lot of non-aligned countries, there wasn't, or at least the you know, reception was lukewarm. And the basic mentality was that, listen, Europe, this is your war. It has ramifications on us, but you deal with it. It's not our problem. Um, and if you look at Latin America, interesting enough, you know, in, in Brazil, you have the extreme right and extreme left in the form of Bolsonaro and Lula, basically saying that this is Zelensky's or Ukraine's fault. Uh, so, you know, we have to be very careful in, in our assessment. And, and, and in that sense, I would say, good news short term for Western democracy, great. But long term, I think we're going to be looking at some kind of a new world order. Uh, and, and what that looks like, I, I, I really don't. I really don't know. Well, and with that uh, uncertainty, which seems to be part of the, the rules of the game lately, we've reached the end of our, of our podcast. I want to thank you both so much for uh, having been with us today. Thank you also to our listeners. Please stay tuned for future episodes and we'll continue dwelling on what that future order may look like. Thank you both and thank you to all. Good evening. Thank you.